You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. When Claire Patak baked the cake for Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding, there was no room for error. Well, I think when something like that, you know, is obviously so high profile and there's so many eyes on it, I wanted to make sure we had a backup plan for the backup plan. How Claire Patak baked cake for a thousand wedding guests. Plus, she gives tips on making desserts with California style and London sensibility. That's coming up later in the show. But first, we're traveling to the Amazon. Joining me now is Rowan Jacobson, host of the podcast series, Obsessions Wild Chocolate. Rowan, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Just when I thought I knew something about chocolate and cacao, you show up. (laughs) I realize I don't know very much. So um, let's start with the current state of big chocolate. I think you said, and it was hard to believe, that Hershey's doesn't actually make chocolate per se anymore. Is, Is that right? Yeah, there's sort of a handful of actual chocolate companies that make the bulk of the world's chocolate. And, you know, chocolate can just be melted down and reformed. And so most chocolate companies just buy ready-made chocolate and then mold it into their own needs. So at the other end of this process are the small growers, the small producers. Uh, You talk a lot about something called wild chocolate. What is wild chocolate? It is literally wild cacao. So for centuries, cacao has been grown on plantations and farms like any other, you know, big agricultural crop. But it originated in the rainforest as this little tree that grows in the understory. And the Maya, even earlier ancestors of the Maya, learned to make chocolate out of these beans from the wild trees. And then, you know, chocolate became a big industry that was all farmed and everyone forgot there was such a thing as the wild ancestors. And then they've sort of been rediscovered and re-embraced over the past 10 to 20 years. So we're starting to see really, really interesting, really high flavor varieties of cacao becoming available on the market. So you actually went down to Bolivia in the Amazon, saw wild cacao harvesting for yourself. Yeah. So just take me through the process. You harvest a cacao pod, you take out the seeds, uh, you ferment it. How does that work? Yeah, so a typical pod, it looks, it's like a Nerf football in both like shape, size, and color. Almost like a delicata squash, you could say. And then just like a delicata, you open it up and it's got almond-sized seeds inside surrounded by this pulp, this sticky, sweet pulp. Of course, it's the seeds that we want, but to get the flavors of chocolate, you have to ferment those seeds. And so the pulp is key for that fermentation process. So you basically, you open up all the pods, pile up all the pulp with the seeds in it that immediately start to ferment because, you know, it's 95 degrees, high humidity. So the fermentation is just natural and spontaneous. And that's all key to transforming the flavor precursors in the beans. And one of the amazing things about chocolate is almost all of the fermentation is still handled by small farmers in the developing world. So 70% of the world's chocolate comes from West Africa, from Ivory Coast and Ghana. All of the chocolate in typical, you know, industrial scale level product is coming from those two countries. And those farmers tend to be incredibly poor. 
And for years, there's been a push to get the chocolate industry, the big guys, to straighten out this situation, both to improve the quality of the chocolate and to improve the quality of the labor conditions. But they haven't made much progress yet. The Part of why the, the craft chocolate industry is so different is that they're not participating in that system at all. They are trying to work directly with farmers. Right. So it's a, it's a completely different model where you actually can start to have this two-way connection with the farmers where you could say, hey, can how about this kind of fermentation? Um, and the farmers would be like, sure, I'll, you know, if, I'll need this much money to do it that way. So that's what you're seeing now is these direct relationships and completely different chocolate evolving because of that. You mentioned the Mass Brothers who were chocolatiers. And I, I sort of remember this, but I think at one point they were making some of their chocolate, but not all of it. Eventually they were making all of it. But that story got out that they weren't producing everything themselves. And I think that's what destroyed the company, right? Yeah. These guys were two brothers who were kind of like the first big breakout of this new craft chocolate industry that was forming in the early 2000s. And they were in Brooklyn and they had the look. They both had these crazy beards. And they talked a lot about authenticity and sourcing. And then it turned out that in the early days of the company, they were actually not sourcing their own chocolate. They were buying Valrona and remelting it. It <laughs> um, sounds like, I mean, at least, you know, Valrona is good chocolate. So it's not like they were using bad chocolate, but, but that was <laughs> it. Once it turned out that the poster children of authenticity buying were, were buying Valrona, that, 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 that was it for them. So where do we stand today with these small producers sourcing wild chocolates? Are there other strains and varieties that are also being sourced now that are high quality? There are uh, quite a few. Um, and there's, there's a whole um, organization called the Heirloom Cacao Preservation Fund, which is a joint venture between the fine chocolate industry and the USDA to try to preserve these heirloom varieties. So the, yeah, there's, there's dozens of varieties, mostly in the Americas, and there are more craft chocolate makers working with them than, than ever before. So we really are in kind of this like golden era of chocolate right now. Are people still finding new undiscovered cacao trees in areas, or is that discovery process pretty much over at this point? No, I, I, it, it seems to just be starting, really. Uh, the woman I, I was working with in Brazil, Luisa Abram, keeps getting contacted by new people living in remote areas saying, like, you know, we have some cacao here and we could use some income. So would you be interested in coming and checking it out? And a group in Peru reached out to me. It's a collection of eight indigenous communities in a very remote part of Peru they have wild cacao, and they're at the very early stages of trying to turn it into a product. Well, the, the two hopeful things are there still are remote areas, which if you read the news, you kind of think, you know, nine-tenths of the Amazon rainforest has been turned into ranches. So that's good. And two, maybe it's a way for keeping those areas the way they are because they, they would be income-producing. And that's the beauty of cacao, which it's kind of unique in that it's it's a shade-loving tree. It it thrives in the understory, so it's it's very rare. It, like I can't, I can't think of many other food products that you can grow beneath a forest, right? So it really does have a unique role to play in preserving rainforest. So let's assume you had an everyday Hershey bar or whatever, uh, and then you had one of these much much better bars. 
just take us through the comparison. Well, I'll start by saying, like, I actually went back and just bought myself a regular Hershey's bar because, like, I wanted to make sure I wasn't just, like, believing my own uh, smoke and mirrors. Right. And it was, I don't know if you've had one lately, but it was shockingly bad. I, I didn't expect it to be as bad as it was. It didn't even taste like chocolate. It had, like, a you know, like a burning electrical smell to it. It has a sort of, um, not plastic, yeah, but it, it has a texture in the mouth that reminds you of something that maybe was petroleum-based at some time. <laughs> maybe that's a little harsh, but it, ha- no. it has that odd-off texture and flavor, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and then I tasted like an 85% lint, which is supposedly a, you know, a higher-end supermarket bar, and it was just very astringent. Um, but so then you go to the, you, you taste one of these craft bars, and the, the flavor really keeps evolving in your mouth. Hmm. You'll often get spicy notes, and floral, a few of the, the cacaos, like the Ecuador one and one of the ones from Brazil, really has a floral quality, almost like uh, like jasmine. But then what I really notice is the depth. Like there's just a richness that sort of keeps going in your mouth and keeps lingering for a long time. So five, ten years from now, do you see the chocolate business changing or you think the big guys will still be doing what they do because it's all about price? I think because of the labor issues, they're just not going to be able to keep doing what they're doing. Um, and you even see the, the countries in Africa, uh, right now they're trying to add an extra $400 a ton charge to their beans purely to, to make it sustainable. And there was a lot of resistance from the big guys, but now they're pretty much signing on to that. But what's going to happen is I think you're going to see more and more people shifting toward these other sources of chocolate. Um, which is going to just speed up the change in the rest of the industry. I hope, at least. Rowan, thank you so much. Um, wild chocolate, specialty chocolates, heirloom chocolates, uh, something to investigate. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. That was Rowan Jacobson. He hosts the limited podcast series, Obsessions Wild Chocolate. Now it's time to answer some of your baking questions with Cheryl Day. Cheryl is the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. She's also author of Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. So spring's here. Asparagus is really the harbinger of spring, I think. People have done thousands of things with asparagus. They've made pesto out of it. They grill it. They broil it. They stir fry it. Do you have any ideas for asparagus this year? Those all sound great to me, but being the baker, I'm going to do asparagus in a quiche. Good idea. Or in a little hand pie with maybe some Mm. sort of cheesy deliciousness on the bottom. I love asparagus, and you don't have to do a lot to it. I'm obsessed with hand pies. You are? Well, oh, it's, a, it's a southern thing. It's not a northern thing. Are they still <laughs> really popular? Because I, yes, I just love, yes. I love them. Yeah. I do sweet and savory hand pies. Mm, mm. And it's just the perfect amount of pie, yeah. you know, in your hand. <laughs> and that's why they're and all the hand And you can do all different kinds. But I think asparagus would be yeah. a delicious hand pie. Oh, man. I want a hand pie. Sometimes a great notion. All right. Cheryl, time for a call. Yeah, let's do it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Florence in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Florence. How can we help you? 
I have a recipe that was in the Wurlitzer Centennial Cookbook when my dad worked for Wurlitzer, but apparently they solicited recipes from family members because my grandmother submitted her grandmother's blackberry jam cake. I made it a long time ago. It's kind of a dense cake, but very nice. The recipe calls for, it emphasizes thick sour cream and thick blackberry jam. Well, of course, we don't have as much control over that because we're getting most of it from the store. But I did have some blackberry jam from a farmer's market, and I made it. And it came out okay, but it was dry. Just run down the key ingredients really quickly for me. Blackberry jam, sour cream, flour, spices. Sugar, probably, and butter. Yeah, sugar. Nothing exotic at all. How much sour cream, and did it have buttermilk or some other liquid in it? It did not have any other liquid in it. Hmm. Is it a layer cake or a bunt cake? It's a layer cake. So the liquid is really, in a way, coming from the blackberry jam because... Right. And how much sour cream? Three tablespoons thick sour cream. Hmm. Not very much at all. How much butter? Butter is three-quarter cup. Three eggs, baking soda. Needs more liquid. Yeah, you need more liquid in it, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Now, there's one other trick. You know, chiffon cakes were made famous back in the, I think, the 1920s. But they used vegetable oil instead of butter. That makes a moisture cake. You could substitute some of the butter with vegetable oil. I think you just don't have enough liquid in this. The blackberry jam, in a way, is kind of acting like a liquid, but it calls for thick jam, so... Well, and this would predate the 1920s. Okay. How many eggs, Florence? Three. Maybe the eggs were bigger. So you're asking how you can make it less dry? I would say more liquid. I would add a cup of butter, an extra egg maybe, and then some more sour cream, don't you think, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how bad can that be? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And then what size cake pans? Is eight inch the standard? Yeah, eight or nine. But it would be important to know because if you're using a nine inch and she calls for an eight inch. I'll check the pan size, but I'm quite sure they're eight. Okay. This sounds like a great idea. And I this time, it, I know in my family it was made with boiled icing, but I used caramel icing and it was great with that. That sounds delicious. Yeah, I think add more fat, add more sour cream and give that a try. Okay. Yeah, let us know luck. how that works let out for you. I definitely will. Thanks so much. Thanks, Florence. Thank you, Florence. Bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Cheryl and I are here to answer your baking questions. Give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sandra, and I'm calling from Montreal, Canada. Hi, Sandra. How can we help you today? I have been baking for over 15 years, and lately I really wanted to experiment with French pastries. And I stumbled upon Canelé de Bordeaux, which are these really interesting little cakes 
Yes. I really have a hard time making them perfect. Chris, have you ever had a cannelle? You know, I have, but I've never... There's certain things in baking I find beyond my reach. Um, (laughs) Homemade puff pastry, I've done like three times. One of them, it worked. But this would be even beyond that. This is really hard. You've picked something that is very tricky, even for professional bakers. It's got a crunchy exterior. It's very rich. It's made with cream and eggs, rum, vanilla. Very simple. Almost so simple that it's just, you know, how could this be so difficult? But it has an incredible flan, custardy-like texture. Wouldn't you agree, Sandra? Absolutely. To make cannelés properly, it's a lesson in the secret ingredients, which is patience and experience. The batter is similar to like a popover or a crepe, but it has like this very effervescent holes inside. They can't be too big. You can't overmix it. There's all sorts of things that can go wrong when you make them. And it's baked in what kind of pan? A copper mold is what most people say. Mm -hmm. There are silicone molds, but everyone that I've ever talked to has said the copper mold, which has to be treated a certain way, you have to Mm -hmm. prepare it. (laughs) There's all these kinds of things that you have to do to season it. So I guess, Sandra, what were some of the issues that you had? Because just the fact that you're making these, I'm impressed. (laughs) Thank you. So I did buy the copper molds. How did you season them? With beeswax. Beeswax, right? I know that some people do a mix of 50-50 of beeswax and butter. Correct. Okay, you guys are way beyond me here. (laughs) What are you doing with beeswax? Is it because it sticks so much? They will stick if you don't season these molds properly, and you have to do it quite frequently. How many times have you seasoned? I think I seasoned them maybe twice or three times before my first bake. Five or six minimum. Okay. And then potentially, if it's not something that you do all the time, you will need to do this again and again. And then I have some other tricks for you, but I'm just curious to know how yours turned out. The taste was really good. I actually used Grand Marnier instead of rum. Oh. And really loved the taste. They do stick. And... The inside, to me, seems still a bit raw. Did you have any issues with the shape? They do puff up, but then I notice that when I take them out, they do fall a little flat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They don't hold their shape. In the recipe, it says that you have to chill the batter overnight. I think it's 12 hours minimum or something like that. Correct. You definitely need to rest the batter overnight, at least 12 to 24 hours. Another trick that I was told is after you've seasoned the molds, if you put those in the freezer, that helps keep the shape. Oh, okay. But then they have to bake in a hot oven on a sheet pan, which (laughs) you need to rotate about halfway through when they're starting to puff up. And if they start to kind of crawl out of the pan, you'll want to pull them out just for a few seconds so that it can kind of lower into the molds and then rotate them. But before you even get there, 
Another trick is that when you make the batter, you want to make sure that you're not getting too many air bubbles in the batter. It's a very okay. slow mix. There's a reason they're professional bakers who do this every day. There definitely <laughs> is. I mean, but hats off to you, Sandra. Yeah, good but, for you. I mean, yeah. it is definitely, Thanks. it's a journey. Take notes. Another thing is, as far as them not cooking all the way in the middle, you're going to definitely want to make sure that your oven is calibrated to the right temperature. If you have an oven thermometer, you can check that. And they just need to cook until they're almost burnt. Not burnt, but super, super dark. I think you should start a YouTube channel (laughs) where every day you bake a new batch and after about a year... You'll still be learning something about how to do this, right? Listen, seriously, I talked to several friends, professional bakers who make these every day, and they said it's a whole thing. Yeah. It's like a process. So You obviously have more confidence than I do, so good for you. I hope this helps. And just so you know, Sandra, that rest overnight, that is what builds up just enough gluten so that they're going to rise mm-hmm. straight up. So that is a very important step. You cannot skimp on any of these steps when you're making cannelays. Wow. (laughs) I'm excited. Yay. I'm excited. Please keep us informed. Sandra, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. God, I haven't thought about those in 10 years. (laughs) And I'm not going to think about them for another 10 years either. Yeah. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, it's Cakes for All Occasions. I sit down with baker Claire Patak right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I'd never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. 
my other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about muscles with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with Baker Claire Patak. She's the owner of Violet Bakery in London. Her latest book is Love is a Pink Cake. Claire, welcome back to Mill Street. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let me just start by saying you've had an amazing few years. You know, I got to visit Violet Cakes in East London recently, and it's just lovely. You also have a new cookbook out, and of course, you were asked a few years ago to make the royal wedding cake for Harry and Meghan. So first of all, how did you get that cake? <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they were really into the whole idea of organic and seasonal ingredients. So I think that was one of the reasons why they really wanted to go with our cakes. I think they probably asked many bakers to come down to Kensington Palace. And we, well, I, I was like, I can't just go with like a slice of cake for them to taste. I have to bring whole cakes, but then I can't bring one flavor. I have to bring <laughs> six. So I brought six whole cakes to Kensington Palace for Megan and Harry to try. It was it was a lot to carry, but it was, uh, I think it was the right, obviously it was the right decision. <laughs> You also explained to me from an insider's perspective how this works, and you had two huge receptions to do. So take me into the kitchen. Like, how many cakes were made? How does this whole thing work? 
Yeah, well, I think when something like that, it, you know, it's obviously so high profile and there's so many eyes on it that I wanted to make sure we had a backup plan for the backup plan. The wedding cake was actually four cakes on three separate beautiful gilt stands from the Royal Collection. And that was... <laughs> those were they were it was a huge sort of like setup with just the one but then we made two of those in case anything happened to those so that's eight cakes there and then we had to make cake that would be cut and served as a bite for they said between 600 and 700 guests for the reception um and so I was like, well, we better make enough for a thousand because, you know, <laughs> and those had to be served sort of instantly. So we had to have them all sliced and ready to go as bite sized pieces, which were passed around on trays. And um, yeah, and then we did two of those as well. So what was the cake? What was the flavor of the cake? I made a lemon and elderflower cake. So the cake itself was soaked in an elderflower syrup. This is like a, I think it's become now really popular in America too, but in England, it's something that is very traditional. It's uh, this sort of cordial, it's like a syrup made from these flowers from the elder tree. And the Sandringham estate has like a huge collection of elder trees. And so they every year make this beautiful, delicious cordial, um, which they gave us to use for the cake. You grew up, I didn't know this, you grew up north of San Francisco. Your parents founded a small theater company. Your mother made costumes. Your dad wrote scripts and directed plays. Um, as you write, mm-hmm. they thrived in this wild, free-loving community. That explains a lot about you. I've never understood. <laughs> I mean, you, and in your book, you actually go back to California. A lot, a lot of the photography's there. So this is really in your bones, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I think there's definitely a time in my life where I wasn't so like understanding of of that kind of upbringing. And then there was times where, you know, I remember my childhood was amazing. And now again, I've kind of come full circle and really appreciate my parents and the community that I grew up in. Um, Yeah, for being so free and and open and supportive. You were the one who introduced me years ago to this idea of, you know, plain white flowers, okay. But other flowers actually have flavor, and rye flour in particular, I know you use a lot, is a good mm. partner with, with sweet because it's slightly bitter. So you do your chocolate chip cookies the same way we do, which is using some rye flour and brown butter. Um, I think they're the best chocolate chip cookies in the world because you get that contrast. I think most of them are too sweet. So how do you totally. make yours? Yes, I love, I love, love, love rye flour. And I think for so long, I mean, it really did have this like bad rap as like just being this sort of very wholesome kind of, you know, very hard bread. And when you mix it, like you say, when you mix it in sweet with a bit of salt as well, salt really helps bring out rye. It becomes something else entirely. And I love it with chocolate. I think it's such a great partner with chocolate. So I have a vegan cookie in the book, which has some rye flour and also some oats in it, which is another favorite. You, I, I love oats like a whole, but I also like to grind them up and use them as a flour too. Um but yeah, it's 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 delish. <laughs> um, I came across slab pies. I, I think it was in a Romanian baking book. But slab pies, you want to talk about them? Because th- that's really a cool concept. I love it. 
I love these slab pies. And I have to give credit here to Martha Stewart because she taught me a lot about pies. Um, Not only slab pies, but also about this idea of a grape pie, which I have this recipe for. And it's just baked in a big cookie sheet, basically. And so it's super great for big parties because you can slice it up. So you want to just describe what it actually is? Yeah. So (laughs) a slab pie is a pie that is a rectangle that's sort of flat. And so you basically bake it in a deep cookie sheet and you put a a bottom crust and then fill it with your pie filling and then a top crust and bake it off like that. So it's probably like what, like an inch thick and it's the most delicious thing. Yeah. Because I love pie pastry. Like it makes me crazy. So (laughs) I feel like you get more, you know, the fruit pie pastry ratio is perfect. We may have discussed this before, but when you make pie pastry, are you using lard or using butter, using vegetable shortening? Uh... All of the above. I have a few recipes in the book for pastry. Um, my most favorite, I'm not going to lie, is with lard <laughs> um, for texture. So the lard gives it this incredible flakiness that's just you can't get any other way but I have to mix it with a little butter for flavor um 100% lard crust is just I don't I don't feel like it tastes like anything but um and same with vegetable shortening so you could definitely use vegetable shortening for um a vegan version but um personally I I really love the way the lard behaves (laughs) it's my fave okay so let's assume someone listening is a decent baker, not an expert. You do a lot of cakes. Are there one or two basic cakes that should be someone's go-to cake because they're, you know, foolproof and delicious? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think actually probably for me, the one that I would recommend for a not as confident baker is the Victoria Sponge. This version that I've written for this book is with brown sugar. So that also, it makes it so delicious. It just gives it that like, you know, that nutty, caramelly flavor of brown sugar, molasses kind of, you know, notes. And it's it's just the easiest thing. It's pretty much equal parts butter, sugar, flour. And then you don't have to do any fancy icing. You just put some delicious jam and um, everybody's always got like a jar of jam kicking around that they need to use up, right? <laughs> and then some whipped cream and top it with a little icing sugar. It's That's one of my favorite, favorite things. Very British. Let's talk about puddings uh, in old-fashioned English desserts. Obviously, that was not your starting point for baking uh, with Alice mm. Waters. You came to London. You opened a stall. What is a pudding? And is is there – I know you have some in the book. Is there one that's particularly English, like Eve's pudding, or is there something that would really be a good stand-in as the world's best pudding? Yeah, puddings I love. It's so interesting because this English-American – lexicon you know it's like pudding in america is associated with jello i think of chocolate pudding in a tub you know and in the uk it's the word for dessert and it's the term that people use for dessert but it really does come from a tradition of a particular type of puddings which are usually steamed or or baked in a way that they're in one dish basically and the eve's pudding is one of my most favorites because they're super easy to make and it's sort of like what you would do if you were going to make a crumble or a crisp. So you have your apples or your pears in the bottom of the tin and then you would put on top of it this sort of almost like a sponge cake that you pour over the top and bake it and then it kind of all combines together and you serve it warm with cream and it's just super delicious. 
You talk about afternoons, uh, and I've, I've noticed traveling a lot, that sweets usually are not served after mm. dinner. That's usually an afternoon, late afternoon event with tea or coffee. Best time of day. Well, what could be better than 4 o'clock and have a slice of your yeah. cake? <laughs> Is that something that's also true in Britain now, or was that something you just picked up from your travels? No, definitely. I mean, I always say like there's the fourth meal here. It's like tea time. They have breakfast, lunch, tea and dinner. And I love it because I think generally in the UK, I find that dinner happens a little bit later than in the US. So you're a little hungrier at eight o'clock than you are at six o'clock or seven o'clock. So generally you have like a little something to keep you going in the afternoon. And that's like something sweet, a cake and a cup of tea. Yeah, it's the I love it. I always want to eat cake in the afternoon. After dinner, I find it's a bit heavy. So I'd rather have it at four or five. Uh, flavored sugars, you know, a lot of people put lime or lemon zest or orange zest in a food processor with sugar, but you do that with basil, which was kind of interesting. Thank you. Yes. This is actually, I have to give credit to my friend Talia Ho, who has written a cookbook as well. She's from Australia and she always makes the most beautiful things. And she talked about doing this basil sugar and I just was obsessed with it and I started making it and what I love is that you really get the anise flavor of basil when you put it with the sugar, and it just is kind of bright and green and anise-y, fennel kind of vibes, and it just is my fav- new favorite. It's my favorite thing. You have a sticky toffee day pudding, a classic, uh, but you talk about making caramel, and mm-hmm. you said you were taught to create caramel with sugar, and then, then you add the cold cream. But you said the English way of making toffee caramelizes the cream with the sugar. How does that work? Yeah, it's really interesting. So you would add the sugar straight to the cream and slowly, slowly cook that so that you're also caramelizing mm. the dairy at the same time. Um, mm, it's really interesting. And the flavor is much richer and deeper. Uh, I love both. I actually love both. It gets a kind of fudgy flavor. And it also actually reminds me of the Mexican method of making cajeta, where you take the goat's milk and you basically cook down the goat's milk with sugar over a long period of time. And I love those flavors. I love how every region has like a slightly different method, but it it's like, it's still caramel, but it just has really different flavors. Um, summer pudding. I love summer pudding. Mm. It's just one of my favorite things to make in the summer. And But you said, I don't love the soggy bread. And I kind of, I don't know, the bread almost becomes custardy over time. Yes. I, I kind of like it, but, but you have a totally different approach. What's your approach? Yeah, I think if you have the perfect bread, you can make it just really have that right texture. But too often, I find that it sometimes gets a little like gummy. The flavors of the pudding, the fruit is like, it's like none other. It's so delicious and Moorish. And so um, I decided that I wanted to kind of deconstruct it. And I made the the fruit, which is like, you know, raspberries and red currants and black currants. And you can kind of put anything you want in there, really. Um, we put a little geranium in ours, vanilla. And, um, and then you take that. And rather than soaking the bread in that, I just made some brioche buns and kind of pour it into a brioche bun with some whipped cream. And it's really nice. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I have to try that. Yeah. Um, so you've been in London... Was it 18 years now? Or yeah. It's not a long yeah, time. Yeah, 18. Um, I, I have two questions. How has London or, or your clientele changed in that time? And two, the U.S. and 
Britain getting closer in terms of food or not? For sure. I've noticed so many changes. You know, even just things like cookies, like everybody would call a cookie a biscuit when I moved here. And now people look for cookies. Um, <laughs> that's kind of a, it always seems like a really good indicator to me, you know. But then also where I am, there was not a lot to offer in terms of restaurants or cafes. I tell this story. I used to go to the hospital to get a coffee when I first moved here because <laughs> inside the hospital there was like sort of a chain like a Starbucks, but it was it's called Rotatsa here, but it was like this chain and you you could get a latte or like, you know, cappuccino. And it was so funny. We would go there like that was our destination for a coffee. So now there's a an amazing coffee on every corner. And then also incredible restaurants. So what's your life like now? And, and do you love it? Or, or what would you change about it? Because obviously... Running a bakery, a famous bakery, is very different than what you might have thought 15 years ago, right? Yeah. You know what? I I am a really annoyingly happy person. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've, I, uh, I really love what I do. I, of course, find it stressful to run a business that's got 25 employees and make sure that we can pay all the bills and do everything when there's, you know, pandemics. And right. so that, yeah, of course, it's hard and stressful. But I think by finding something to do that I really, truly love to do and then turning it into a business, I'm just really lucky. I, I mean, you know, obviously I worked at it, but I, I do feel like I encourage people to try to make work from what they love because then you love to go to work. How about in terms of family, like with your daughter? I know she's grown up at the bakery to some extent. Yeah. Totally. But is is that when she gets older, she's going to go like, I was so lucky to grow up in <laughs> mom's bakery. Or she could say, you know, God, I had to grow up in mom's bakery. <laughs> yeah. Which one is yeah, it? Yeah, well, I think so Francis, okay, so here's the, you know, the karma. She doesn't like cake. She tells me all the time. <laughs> and so uh, it's really funny. Of course, I have a child that doesn't like cake. But she does, I know, love hanging out at the bakery. And she loves, oh, my God. Well, I just got my very first copy of the book. And I I read the introduction to her as like a bedtime story last night. Didn't take her long to fall asleep. But um, in the beginning, I talk about her. And I could just see how... She was so excited that she was in the book. Mm. And so I think she does understand that that's kind of a cool thing. And it's really a joy for me to be able to, like, share it with her on that level. It's super fun. Claire, thank you so much. It's it's always great to talk to you. And uh, I just love, love your food. It's just amazing. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. It's such a joy always to talk to you, too. I really appreciate it. That was Claire Patak. She's the owner of Violet Bakery in London also author of Love is a Pink Cake. You can find her recipe for grape slab pie at MilkStreetRadio.com. My visit with Claire Patak at her East London bakery got me thinking a bit about the business of food. To be sure, restaurants and bakeries are businesses, but some of them put business before pleasure. McDonald's, for example, put the fast into fast food, with disposable paper packaging and a production line that even Henry Ford admired. Here in America, the tyranny of profit often outweighs pleasure, but at Violet Bakery, pleasure always comes first. And to quote sportscaster John Miller, business is about profit, but at its best, it's about expanding the possibilities of humanity. 
This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik finds the beauty in sourdough starter and schmutz. That's right up after the break. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to talk about this week's recipe, hot milk sponge cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. As you know, we recently did a a new TV show called My Family Recipe. Uh, We find folks who have family recipes that need some help, some loving attention. Uh, And my favorite one, it was absolutely stunning, was from Pennsylvania, from uh, Linda White. And uh, it was hot milk sponge cake. Now, I think of Genoise, right? Because you add milk and butter to it. Scary. Genoise never works, ever. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so we went into this one, uh, 
and two things. The milk really was hot. <laughs> and two, this is a recipe that's impossible to mess up. I mean, it really works. It's so amazing. So um, what did we do to help her with the recipe? So Linda had an old recipe book from her grandmother that had a bunch of ingredients and like literally no instructions whatsoever. So we kind of started at ground zero. Um, but obviously the most intriguing part of the recipe was this hot milk. And I guess hot milk sponge cakes happened in the late 1800s because people needed to pasteurize their milk. So we assumed when we went in to help redevelop this recipe for Linda that the milk temperature wouldn't really make a difference, right? And in fact, it did. It made a much more airy and tender cake. It was so obvious a difference. So turns out that when you heat the milk, it denatures the milk protein, and that would affect the gluten development. So it makes for a more tender cake. Yeah, you also get a texture that's satiny. It's a little like devil's food cake. Yeah. It's hard to describe. It's much more interesting than a regular sponge cake. It's sort of angel food, sponge cake, devil's food all rolled into one. It just has an amazing texture. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting cake because I don't think many of us had ever seen it before. And the texture, like you said, is hard to pinpoint, kind of draws the line between like a layer cake or a devil's food cake and a a traditional sponge cake. It does have baking powder in it for leavening, not just eggs, as would be typical in a sponge cake. And it's really simple to put together. It's like you said, it's almost impossible to mess it up. You just whip egg yolks and sugar together, heat the milk just until it's scalding, drizzle that in really slowly so you don't cook the eggs, and then add in your dry ingredients, whip the egg whites just until they're kind of droopy peaks. You definitely don't want to over whip the egg whites. That's maybe the only tricky part. Fold it in, put it in a tube pan. It bakes for about 50 minutes or so. Linda's family doesn't even use utensils when they eat this. They just pick it up with their hand. It has great flavor. There's a little bit of orange zest in there. This cake has been called the little black dress of cakes, which I think perfectly fits because it can be dressed up or it can go simple, um, but it's just perfect as it is. Yeah, I've made this five or six times, and every single time, I've been asked for the recipe, which does not always happen when I cook. Man, that's a good one when you have that Yeah, happen. it's a good one. Lynn, thank you. Uh, something old, something new, uh, this <laughs> phenomenal recipe, uh, hot milk sponge cake. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for hot milk sponge cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Josh Mandel, and here's my tip for baking multiple batches of cookies. You never want to put your cookie dough on a cookie sheet that's still warm from the oven. But if you run the cookie sheet under cold water for literally like three seconds, it will chill the sheet down perfectly. And what's more, if you only run the water on the underside of the cookie sheet, you don't even have to dry it off before you put it back in the oven. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip right here on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Now it's time to chat with Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am very well, Chris. How are you today? I'm good. I've been thinking a lot lately about the question of aging. I think it's something that hits us all. But I was thinking a little more poignantly 
and specifically about my mom, because my mom is a fascinating woman. She was an early scientist of uh, neurolinguistics, but she also was a fantastic cook. And she taught me to cook, making everything from uh, tuna au poivre to uh, a souffle. But what I'm not good at is baking. And my mom is a fantastic baker. And I went north to rural Canada to bake with her a few years ago. And she showed me this huge range of things that she's mastered. Um, bagels. She makes Montreal-style bagels, the kind you boil first and then bake. She makes a thing of her own invention called the boisson, which is a cross between a brioche and a croissant, which if I ever had the presence of mind to commercialize it, <laughs> to monetize it, so we would have a mom gops boissons on every street corner in New York, that, that's my missing million dollars, Chris. <laughs> but one of the things we did is we dug our hands deep into her sourdough starter, which is, I'm sure, as you know, is always called the mother in a good baker's kitchen. Yes. And as she's gotten older, of course, she's able to bake less and less often and less broadly. And my mom really began to focus on her sourdoughs and on baking her sourdoughs. And she would do it in a very kind of single-minded way. And it made me happy and sad at the same time. You know how that is with a beloved family recipe of any kind, Chris, that it's continuity, its perpetuity is simultaneously happy because the thing is going on and sad because you realize that it won't go on forever in the same hands that began it. Yeah, that's true. I think it also brings you back in time. And there are certain things like homemade peach ice cream, for example, for <laughs> me, we used to make when I was six or seven in a cabin in Vermont. And, you know, it, it has all those memories, even though we still make it today, but it's not the same. No, and when we try to recreate a lost family recipe, it's never the same, is it? Well, because the, it's not just about the food, of course. It's about the context. Yeah. It's always about the context. But I began thinking very hard, and as I say, with a certain kind of poignance. And then I read a remarkable thing about the nature of sourdough. It came from uh, actually from an experiment done by, predictably, French biochemists studying the chemistry, the biology of baking. And you know what they discovered? That the hands, the schmutz on the baker's hands, penetrates the sourdough starter, the mother, and leaves its residue there. So you, when you are baking in a French bakery someplace in the south of France or Normandy, you are literally in contact as you dig your hands into the starter with the hands of a baker who may have been dead for two centuries. The microbes huh. linger even after the baker is gone. And that turns out to be true, Chris, and I hadn't known this, over a broad range of, um, of biological cooking, you know, those things that have uh, mold and microbes and that get part of their greatness from it. The residue from the hands of the cook, the hands of the baker, the hands of the cheesemaker remain. So my mother's mother, my, the sourdough starter <laughs> that my mother has been working on for all those years, will remain even after our mothers have gone. The problem with this fact is that the now responsibility for keeping your mother's sourdough starter alive <laughs> month after month, <laughs> you better not let that go down because there's a whole lot, there's an entire legacy yes, writing Yes, absolutely. Right? And you know what? It's also so fascinating for me that that's not an illusion. Our sense that the mm. deepest continuities we know in life are the continuities of the gut and the palate, that's mm -hmm. true. When we taste cheese, we are truly in dialogue with cheesemakers, 
hundreds of years gone. When we eat good sourdough bread, we're actually engaged with microbes that uh, long predated Napoleon. I find that to be beautiful in its humility. Mm. You know, we, we try sometimes to dignify food and the art of cooking by making it a grand high thing. But in truth, part of its mm. joy is that it is a low available thing, and yet it's exactly in its lowness, its availability, its schmutziness, if you like the Yiddish word, that ensures its immortality. Well, we live in a world that is distinguished by its total lack of continuity <laughs> from one generation <laughs> to the next. So now schmutz to the rescue. It turns out we really are connected. Absolutely. Some I once was, there's a wonderful, famous uh, delicatessen in Montreal where I grew up, as you know, called Schwartz's, where they do the great Montreal smoked meat. And they made the terrible mistake once of cleaning out the smoke room because oh. it had been left untouched for a hundred years. Exactly. You know, where was all of that flavor coming from? Right. It was coming from the schmutz in the smoke room. Um, it's, a, it's a valuable lesson. Adam, thank you, and Ode to Schmutz. (laughs) (laughs) That may be the title of my next book. (laughs) That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. His latest book is The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to our live stream cooking classes, and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.